I was away and I was talking to the pastor of the church that I was visiting, who's a friend of mine, and when I said we're doing a four-part series on the Trinity, he's like, the, what's your fourth bit? But so just in case that freaks you out and you think this is some weirdo extra bit church, the first one was a summary of the Trinity, then we did Father, Son, and today we're looking at the Holy Spirit. Despite the fact that I've clearly copied and pasted my slides, and the title says God the Son up the top, then down the bottom it says... God the Spirit. So today we're looking at the Spirit. Last week Samuel uh, spoke about God the Son, Jesus Christ. So let's come before God in prayer as we depend upon him in our time as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you are a God who desires to be known and that you make yourself known to us. We thank you that through the inspiration of your spirit, we have your word given to us and that your spirit who who inspired every word of it dwells within us, that we might know your very purposes, that we might have the power to be able to to put into practice the things that you lay before us. Lord, we pray that in our times we look at the, the Holy Spirit this morning, that we would be refreshed, we would be encouraged, we would be overjoyed by the wonderful blessings that you have poured out to us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's something I really love. When you see either a new product or something being marketed, and I think to myself, who in their right mind thought, the world's got to have this? Now, this isn't the most extreme example, but I still recall the very first time, I think it might have been Darling and Harbour in Sydney, where I first encountered an oxygen bar. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, there's a picture up there on the screen. It's a place sometimes, it's a little kiosk in a shopping centre, or it might be an independent little shop, where you go in and it's a wonderful night out for socialising, where you put some plastic tubes up your nose to up your oxygen levels in your blood. Now, I'm not a scientific professional or a medical professional, but I've always been of the impression that we breathe oxygen in and out for free every moment of our life. And I'm yet to find a single person who doesn't rely upon oxygen. What I do find quite rare is to find someone who's consciously thinking about it. It's like, oh, I better get some oxygen. I'll breathe in and and breathe out and I'll keep doing that. Whoops, I better do it again. No one thinks about it. We just intuitively breathe in, breathe out. It is natural as it comes to us, if we don't have oxygen, we don't have life. Human life requires oxygen in order for human life to flourish. And in the same sense, the spiritual life, the Holy Spirit is essential for giving and granting and flourishing spiritual life. Jesus plainly said in John chapter 6, it's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. That's pretty clear how much help our efforts, our fleshly abilities are. No help at all. And it's interesting the way in which Christians are described in the reading that we had before the sermon in Romans chapter 8. Verse 5, it just blatantly describes them as all Christians as those who live according to or by the Spirit. That this should be the natural flow and rhythm of our life. Without the Spirit, there will be no flourishing in our spiritual life. Now in our final message as we've gone through the Trinity, whole overview, Father, Son and Spirit, this is the one that I've actually been most looking forward to. 
Now, I know as soon as I make a statement like that, someone's going to think, oh, I know, he's one of those blokes. But I'll tell you why. Is it because I think the Holy Spirit is the most important? No. Is it because I think the Holy Spirit's the most powerful? No. Is it because I think the Holy Spirit's most exciting? No. The reason why I'm most excited about speaking about this particular topic is that it's the one that tends to get the most neglected. Particularly sometimes in evangelical circles, people sometimes joke and say, oh yes, you, your Father, Son and Holy Scriptures. Francis Chan, when he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit, it was called The Forgotten God. That even though as we have spoken about Trinity as being there is one God who has eternally existed in a loving union of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, we think a lot about the Father, we think a lot about the Son, but sometimes we don't think much or enough about the Spirit. So if I was preaching during an era when everyone's talking Spirit and the Son, I'd probably say, I'm most excited about talking about the Father if he was the one being neglected. But it's an interesting bit of trivia. Up until the 20th century, how many books exclusively dedicated to the topic of the Holy Spirit do you think got written? One. John Owen in 1869 wrote the very first book exclusively to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you know, from the 20th century onwards, there's been an abundance of books on the Holy Spirit, some which you may have wished never did get printed or written, some which may be fantastic. But if we were to think of the Father, Son and Spirit, one God, three persons, all equally God, then it's right that we restore our thinking to thinking in the same high terms of the Spirit as we do as the Father and the Son. So this morning we're going to look at what are the primary functions of the Spirit? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? Why we must not downplay or neglect the Spirit? And we're going to wrap it up with enjoying fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Every single week we've had a reminder that each of the three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, none of them are more God than the other. They're all equally 100% God. One isn't stronger in one area than another because if one was weak in one area, that would be the extent to which you'd say that one is not God. The way in which they differ is the way in which they relate to each other within the Trinity and how they relate to creation. For example, we see the Son submits to the Father. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. But in the context of that submission, nothing of their equality, of their nature of God, is taken away. It's merely a functional thing. But before we talk about the primary functions of the Holy Spirit towards us as people, it's probably helpful to make a note that what we see in the Old Testament, how the Holy Spirit interacts with people, is very different than what we see in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is counted up to be about 100 people whom the Holy Spirit is said to come upon. Only 100 in the entirety of the the elements that we have described in the Old Testament. And 70 of those happen on one occasion in Numbers chapter 11. But things are extremely different. If we're only talking about 100 of them, clearly the Holy Spirit came selectively to some people, not to all of God's people. And it wasn't permanent, it was temporary. And it was often temporary for the sake of performing a particular task or function. So we see the Holy Spirit come upon prophets, 
upon civil rulers like kings, judges and, and Moses. We even see upon craftsmen in the, in the building of the tabernacle. But when you come over to the New Testament, you see that Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, all of God's people. It is permanent. It's not just for one specific function, although there is some functions involved, but for the complete transformation of the person to make them more and more like Jesus. It is so significant marker of who we are as Christians. In Romans 8, that we just had read, verse 9, it says, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong to God. It's a defining mark of being a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. So in answering what are some of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit, obviously we're not going to talk about everything he does or we'd be here for a long time. But Jesus gave a pretty good succinct starting point in John chapter 16 where he sprawled it into two separate categories, how he interacts towards the world, those who don't currently know Jesus and towards those who do. Beginning with the world, he says, and when he comes, speaking of the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And then he turns his attention to his disciples around him. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for I will. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, he puts in two categories. Towards those who are not in a relationship with God, towards the world, the role of the Spirit is to convict regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Remember, the message of the gospel is what God has done in Jesus Christ, to deal with the problem of our sin. And the Holy Spirit's role is to help us to see and convict us that we have a sin problem, that we are not righteous before God, we need a righteousness that is not of our own, and that we all will one day stand before him. So bottom line, no spirit, not a single person would be saved. We will not see their need for a sin saviour. And then he speaks towards those who do know him. He will take the things of the Father and the Son and declare them and make them known to you. And we'll expand on that a little bit later. But it's worth noting here, verse 14, he will glorify me. Nowhere in the New Testament will you see the Holy Spirit seeking to bring glory to himself. His role is always to bring glory to the Son or to bring glory to the Father. So let me have a look at some of the primary things which he does in relation to us. Firstly, he guarantees and seals your salvation. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Now, so often we think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. That's one everyone goes to. When, it says, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of the inheritance laid ahead for you. It says, when you believe, that's when you receive the Spirit. And as controversial as the the term baptism of the Spirit is, that just means when you receive it, the moment you believe. Sorry if that makes it less exciting for you. 
It's not a second event. When you believe, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Your salvation is sealed. You are marked as God's own child. But while we always refer to that one, there's actually two others in 2 Corinthians. We'll just look at one of them. The other one's in chapter 5, verse 5. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We don't need to pray like David did in Psalm 51. Remember after his affair with Bathsheba and he prayed, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Because he'd seen that happen to Saul and his disobedience to God. That's not something that happens to us as New Testament Christians. We don't pray, don't take your spirit from me. It's our guarantee and seal of our salvation. And take my word for it, God's guarantees are pretty good. He indwells and fills believers. That's just the regular terminology used in the New Testament. Talking about you receive the Spirit or you are indwelt with the Spirit. Sometimes people might think, why does he have to indwell us? Is it just a technicality, sounds nice? Or maybe it's that God-sized hole that I heard about in a sermon somewhere, which a phrase you won't find in the Bible. Just as we needed the Spirit in order to see our need for a sin saviour, How much more do we need the presence and enabling of the Spirit to help us to live this new life that he's called us into? And I want to break that into three particular areas in which he works within us. It's not all of them, but just three specifics. Our sanctification to empower us and to illuminate. We'll talk about what they mean as we work through them. Firstly, our sanctification. It's a big word, just means changing us, transforming our character and our behaviour to be more like the character and nature of Jesus Christ. I'm guessing you and I have already realised that when you believed and you received the Spirit, how many of you became perfect the next day? None of us. The Apostle Paul, who's writing these instructions, you go back to the chapter before the one that we read and he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I know I should, things I shouldn't do, I do with them. We struggle between our flesh nature and our desires of the Spirit. Hence why one of the roles of the Spirit described in our opening reading says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It doesn't say if you try harder, put in more effort, you will put to death the deeds of the body. It says but by the Spirit. Again, to go back to Jesus, the flesh is no help at all. This transformation is the work of the Spirit. Galatians 5, which famously contrasts the fleshly nature and the spiritual nature, goes on to speak about what it calls the fruit of the Spirit, as in the nature of the things which come out of a person who is depending upon the Spirit. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when it says, and against such things, this is not the definitive list of all of Christ-like character that is formed in us by the Spirit. But either way, it is character formed by the Spirit, not merely by trying harder as Christians. So he works in our transformation, but he also works to empower us. You ever heard that old saying that people say, whatever God calls you to, he will equip you to do that very thing. That's true. 
But I think sometimes when people say that, what they think in their mind of what God calls them to is actually probably far less than maybe what the Bible describes of the Christian life. Sometimes we read through our New Testament, we see the apostles or we see any of the Christians described in the New Testament and we think, these are the elite Christians. These are a completely different type of Christian than you and I. Now, it's fair to say, yes, apostles did have a specific set, historical role. It's not our role to be writing new scriptures and establishing the teaching of the church or anything like that. But they still had the exact same Holy Spirit that you and I have. But even when you read through some of the other people who were not apostles, who were not elders, people like Stephen, remember what he was assigned to do? To wait on tables. A pretty mundane, menial task. But they chose men who were what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not something that should be an experience by some You go over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but speaking to the whole church, he commands them, be filled with the Spirit. No Christian receives a lesser Holy Spirit than the apostles or any other New Testament Christian. Nor are we given the Holy Spirit just so that we can merely survive and get through life. We are given the Spirit to give us power to live a transformed life to the glory of the Father and to the glory of the Son. You can't help but noticing that when Jesus speaks to his disciples at the end of Luke chapter 24, and he says, stay here in Jerusalem when you will be clothed with power, speaking of the coming of the Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If you read throughout the New Testament, the connection between spirit and power is a very, very strong and normal connection to make. Because the same Holy Spirit that made a virgin girl, Mary, be able to conceive Jesus Christ is the exact same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I. The exact same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the exact same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I. The exact same Holy Spirit that Jesus said was the means by which he cast out demons is the exact same Holy Spirit that lives in you and I. We don't receive a minor share of the Spirit. The idea of having some lesser part of would make it the extent to which it's not the Holy Spirit. We need to stop thinking the Holy Spirit as being like when you're riding a bike and you've just got a nice gentle breeze that makes things a little bit easier. Instead, what we have is the fullness of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwelling within our body. That should change the way we think about who we are and how we live. Thirdly, he helps us to illuminate scriptures. I'm yet to know a Christian that doesn't struggle at times with Bible reading. Isn't it a comfort to know that the very Holy Spirit that was overseeing Every word that we have in our Bible, who knew the intent, who knew the application, who knew the purpose for which it was given, dwells within us. You can't ask for a nearer and closer help to understand the scriptures. Or a greater enabling to carry out the things that he lays out before us. 
Now, it's not like you're sitting down to read a novel, you think, well, I'm just going to read a chapter, I'll start here, and I'll get to that full stop at the end, and I'm done. You say, God, this is your word. You have given it by your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit dwells within me. Help me to see the very reason for why you gave it. Help me to see your plan and your purpose for your scripture. Help me to live and walk in accordance to it because I trust that you have given me the, the ability to do so. And thirdly, he gives us gifts to build others up. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time here, not because it's controversial, but because I just want to put it in its right perspective. But one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he gives gifts to all of God's children. Abilities for the serving of others, for the benefit and the building up of others. There is one single purpose that is described in giving of those gifts in 1 Corinthians twelve seven, when it says, each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He doesn't give you gifts so you can say, oh, wow, look how good I am, I can do this or to gain attention for yourself. They're not exclusively for your benefit, but for the building up of others. Nor are they a sign of how spiritual you are or how mature you are. If you were to think of any of the New Testament churches that are immature, probably the first one that comes to mind is Corinth, where they were practicing all sorts of things. But it's important to remember All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Not everyone gets the same gifts. So having one gift doesn't mean that you're more spiritual than another. But the gift which he has given you is in his overall divine will of knowing what is most needed where you are, he gives you what you got and that is the most perfect thing for you to have. When you read about gifts in Romans 12, it says, whatever is your gift, use it because that is what God has appointed to you because that's what's going to best help and build up those who are around you. Now, it's no secret that I'm not convinced that any of the New Testament gifts have come to being ceased at any point in time. But for those of you who are uncomfortable with that statement, I'll probably share a number of things in common with you. I'm probably equally concerned by some of the things that you see in church where you think, if they do still exist... That looks nothing like what the Bible talks about. Or if they do exist, that's not the way the Bible says they should be practiced in a church service. I would agree with you to that extent. But the reason why I'm not convinced that they ceased at any point in time is because I believe strongly in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. And if the Scripture says, earnestly seek spiritual gifts, if the Scriptures are to be sufficient, then the Scriptures need to say, but don't do them again after either the apostles or the scripture is closed, but it doesn't make that statement. To be honest, I'd actually find it more convenient if I didn't hold that view. But people, that's where I'm persuaded. It's not a big point, but if you have concerns about me even making that as a side note, uh, do feel free to come chat with me and maybe point out the verse that I haven't yet seen. Living by the Spirit. Isn't that sometimes just like a phrase that we kind of think, I am a Christian I live by the Spirit. But if someone asked you, what does that look like? I'm just living as a Christian. Really? Often the New Testament authors say, look to Jesus as an example to follow of what it means to live as a Christian. Because even though Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, 
So much of his ministry on this world, we see he's willingly surrender access to his divine nature and powers in order to operate within his human nature and express dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that he could be an example to those who would follow after him. Now that might sound like a new concept, it might not, but it's an interesting study as you read through the gospel. I'll just give you a couple as a brief overview. As we've already referred to, he was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's there at his beginnings. He's at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down and, and he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then goes and says that Jesus, doesn't say Jesus decided to go out to the wilderness in his own divine authority. He was led by the Spirit to go out into the wilderness. Then says Jesus returns to Galilee not in his own power as the Son of God, but in the power of the Spirit. He then describes about his mission in, the, in Luke chapter 4. He does, says, Now I've come to give sight to the blind, set the captives free. But he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do these things. When he talks, having that interaction about casting out demons with some of the religious leaders, he says, I cast out demons by the Holy Spirit not by my inherent authority as the Son of God. And the writer of Hebrews even says in Hebrews 9, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. Look at Peter's summary of Jesus' ministry in Acts chapter 10, speaking of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He doesn't say he does these things in his divine nature as the Son of God, which he could have, but because the Holy Spirit was on him and God was with him. Now, when I say that we are to look to Jesus as an example, I'm not saying that we should therefore expect that he did it, he lived sinless, perfect life, that we're going to do it. Matter of fact, if you meet someone who says they're sinless, then you can say, well, that lie you just told, one that just proved it, that you're not. But before we became followers of Jesus, we naturally just lived according to the flesh. Romans says that the, the life lived by the flesh is hostile to God. I cannot please God. And when the New Testament authors keep reminding us, saying, live by the Spirit, continue in the Spirit, the reason why it provides those warnings is there's a very real chance that we could revert to going back by living our old ways. And I think sadly sometimes we presume I'm a Christian, God's placed his spirit within me, it's all autopilot from here on in, God's just going to do his thing. But when Galatians 5, which we've already referred to, shows about a contrast between the flesh and the spirit, we see these are these butt heads. They can't go together. It says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desire of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Unlike the opening analogy, we don't, where the oxygen fuel life is just something we intuitively do, breathe in, breathe out without thinking. None of us intuitively depend upon the spirit without thinking, without seeking to do so. If anything, by default, we're more likely to slip back to go back to our old ways. Those old ways defined by the flesh that are hostile to God, that cannot please God. 
But notice what Paul said to the Galatians. If you live by the flesh, it will keep you from living by the Spirit. It's not just that it's a wrong thing to do. It actually stops you from doing what you should be doing. But he also turns it around and says, but if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the desires of the flesh. Putting to death the desires of the flesh is not about just trying really hard to do them, but it is pursuing living by the Spirit. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he spoke about training himself for godliness. And it gets me thinking, what does it mean to train ourselves for godliness? And in reality, every single thing we do will either actually train us for godliness or train us in ungodliness. It'll either be fleshly or it'll be spiritual. It'll either help us and develop good habits to make us more godly or otherwise. It's probably a helpful thing to think about when we're making decisions. Is this going to train me in godliness or train me to be more fleshly? Is it going to bring me closer to God or further away? And it's a relief to know that the God who chose us before the foundation of the world, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son, to be transformed, to be more like Jesus, that Spirit is living within us who desires and wants and works to achieve that very purpose. And let me assure you of this. No matter how strong your fleshly desires may be, the Holy Spirit is immeasurably more powerful than they are. I know how strong our our inclination may be towards something that we've been stuck in and stuck in for years. And even though in that moment that might just seem like it's the only way we can go, I can assure you that the indwelling spirit which raised Jesus Christ from the dead is immeasurably more powerful and more able to guide you into the things of God. Even as we look to the example of Jesus, does it ever puzzle you that the Son of God, when he was about to choose his 12 disciples, spent the entire night in prayer? When he's tempted in the wilderness, he didn't cross his arms saying, I'm the son of God, go away, Satan. He depended upon the very word of God. Imagine that situation where he's there, tempted in the wilderness, no food or drink for 40 days, and Satan says, how about you make them rocks into some bread? How tempting would that have been? To want, no, I can do that, I'm hungry, that'll do it. But regardless of how strong that desire may have been, he would rather depend on the resources which God has given. So I'm not going to make any guarantee that trusting the Holy Spirit is going to be the easiest option because it won't be. Sometimes you'll feel like it's the least attractive option set before you. But what I will guarantee is that you will grow spiritually stronger and stronger as you trust him from the small things all the way through to the bigger things. You'll be pleased to know the last couple of bits are a bit shorter. Why we must down, not downplay or neglect the Holy Spirit. Now, there's some circles where people kind of even reluctant to mention the Holy Spirit, just on the off chance that someone thinks they're some loony, crazy Pentecostal. Now, while I'd agree that some of those excessive things that you see in some areas of the church are sinful, they're completely contrary to what God has provided that doesn't mean that the godly response is to completely ignore the, God, the Holy Spirit. I would say that was equally sinful as a matter of fact. 
And I'll give three reasons for doing so. We're talking about God, the Holy Spirit. This is God. To neglect or to deny is to neglect and to to neglect and to deny God. Who has given his Holy Spirit as a wonderful gift to enable and live within his believers. Secondly, we're given two commands in the New Testament. One in Ephesians 4.30, where the context is talking about our sanctification, being changed from our fleshly nature to become more like Christ, where he says, do not grieve the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit who longs to transform you to be more like Jesus. We're in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. We looked at that last year when we looked at 1 Thessalonians. Again, the context is our sanctification, transformation to become more like Jesus. But it's also wedged between that and the phrase, do not despise prophecies. It says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, which we, again, big topic, won't be able to deal in detail. In Mark 3, Jesus says, whoever blasphemes will be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I need to quickly answer what that means so everyone in this room is not freaking out. Have I done it? And I can say, if you're a Christian, you haven't done it and you can't do it. The context of what is happening there in Mark chapter 3 or Matthew chapter 12, Jesus had been casting out demons and the religious leaders were saying, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. What he was saying is, what I'm doing here is the witness of the Holy Spirit as to who I am. I am the Messiah. I'm the Saviour. And if you reject that testifying, witnessing work of the Spirit to point to the reality of the Saviour, the one who's come to forgive our sin, there is no forgiveness if you reject the signs that point you to the Saviour. If you don't come to see the goodness and the reality of the Saviour, there will be no forgiveness. So wrapping up, enjoying fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I just want you to take hold of this wonderful truth. The fullness of the Holy Spirit lives in you and I if you are a child of God. We don't share, get like a a minor part shared like you might have shares in a company where you all have a little tiny bit each. To have a part of the Holy Spirit isn't the Holy Spirit. I want us to go away from our time together this morning appreciating that wonderful gift which God has given us. Living in light, knowing the fact that the power of the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This is how Jesus spoke of the coming of the Spirit. He says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Now the setting was the disciples had heard Jesus saying, I'm returning to the Father. And the disciples like, how are we going to get by in life if you're no longer with us? And Jesus' word of comfort was, I'm going to send you another helper. Now I think sometimes, when I said before that we can tend to think about the Holy Spirit as being a little breeze that helps us along the way, maybe it's when we read words like this as the helper, we think of someone who's kind of like a a background, little bit of a helper and assistant. But there are two Greek words for the word another. One is heteros, which means another of a different kind, like we use for heterosexual. And there's another which is alos, which means another of the same kind. And that's what Jesus is using here. He's saying, I will give you another helper exactly like me. 
You don't need to worry that I'm going to the Father because what you have already had in your midst will be within you. The exact same substance. Not 5% of it. Not an inferior helper. The exact same time. Sometimes we romanticise of how good would it have been to live 2,000 years ago. To see Jesus. To hear him teach. To talk with him. To walk with him. Jesus said something in John 16, 7 that might shock you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Does that sound odd? Here they were, living, walking, talking amongst the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. You're better off if I go and I send the Holy Spirit. Not saying the Holy Spirit's better, and we've made that point throughout the entirety of the series. But what he's saying is that everything that you've seen and enjoyed in me will be in its fullness in you forever. To your advantage. Can you imagine how our life would be if we lived every moment believing that reality? That the fullness of the Spirit, the exact same helper, the same as having Christ, is within us every moment of the day. I know sometimes when I'm in a either a workplace environment or even a hobby, if there's an expert present, we tend to back off a bit, don't we? Like if it's your workplace and there's someone who's really good at it, we kind of like back off and we say, oh, maybe you should do it. Or maybe we say, oh, can you help me how to do it? Even though we might do it on a daily basis, just because we know they are more able. Remember the words of Jesus? The spirit gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Your human ability is of no help to your spiritual growth. In everything that we do, we say, I can't do this. I need you to help me do this. You are the fullness of God's Holy Spirit living within me. Help me to do this. Do this through me because I can't. That the description that Paul used of Christians in Romans chapter 8 in our reading will be what is seen and characterised in every one of us. That we are people who live by and live according to the Holy Spirit that God has provided for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit. Father, we confess at times that we have downplayed both in theory what you have given us and God we know on a daily basis we downplay in reality the power that you have placed within us by your Holy Spirit help us to really believe the things that we say that we believe help us to live in the reality that your spirit is within us desiring to transform us opening our eyes to see clearly the things that you have made known in your scriptures. To use the gifts that you have given us to serve others, to build up the body. Lord, help us to appreciate, give thanks, and to walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit which you have given to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.